This is the Power to Podcast, show 122. I might tweet and direct message somebody that way and say, you know, I have a student doing a project. In a regular classroom, it all depends. I, I have middle school teachers that do adopt an aquifer. And when they went to a conference and met some farmers, they connected with farmers that lived on those aquifers. They may be able to look for scientists that are working on projects on those aquifers. And then the students can interview those people and they've used LinkedIn to mine that information. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Kennerman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the thespian Rogers. Matt, how you doing tonight? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I've had solid week at school. Uh, things are moving along. It's a good time of year. I have been in a lot of classrooms in the high school past two weeks, teaching a lot of lessons, either facilitating it with teachers or doing some model lessons for teachers to think about some strategies to implement next school year. And it's been with a lot of seniors and a lot of kids that I had. So that always makes it a little bit, a little bit more fun. That's super awesome. I know we have recorded a podcast prior that'll come out in the summer, but I find myself getting prepared for the end of the school year because uh, as you know, I am transitioning from fourth to fifth grade next year. So I have this urge to rip my classroom down and start unpacking already. Uh, although that's not fair to my kids, but um, I am, I've gone through the, what the grieving phase, like sad questioning. I never really got angry about it, but I was like, all right, why me? And now I'm just ready to go. Like, let's, let's get this school year going. Let's skip summer. All right. No, I'll take summer, but, um, I I'm feeling ready to go. I'm looking forward to change and challenge and, uh, seeing what a year older kid can bring to the table, uh, when it comes to quality of work, independence, um, all those type things, but I think ties into tonight pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. It totally ties in tonight. If you've learned anything from me and, and maybe a little bit from our guests is you should be having the kids tear down and, and pack up your classroom. Oh, they are. Don't you leverage, worry. Leverage that time. So yeah, tonight I, I said it at the end, but it just, we are just so lucky to have the guests that we've had on this show. We have talked to so many teachers, so many speakers and authors that are all incredibly passionate about education, incredibly passionate and positive about teachers and about education. It really has kept me you know, aligned to that positive side of education that I truly believe is the majority, regardless of what you see and read and hear, maybe in other, in other news outlets and, and media. And just so many unique classrooms and teaching positions. It's just, 
it just amazes me. And, and Christine, definitely she's, so uh, she is the 2023 New Jersey teacher of the year. And she definitely is teaching in a unique position, but I truly believe she is shedding light on what makes her classroom successful. And that mindset is something that our teachers and our listeners can apply to anything that you teach. I would totally agree. And I think we talk about how I use percentage. Sometimes if we get 70% of the way there as a regular ed content specific teacher, that might be satisfactory. That, that might be good enough. It is really cool to hear of someone who gets to go 100% in in 40 different directions based off the kids' interests that she has. And you'll hear about the position, but it it sounds both overwhelming and just impressive. And and um, there's definitely a little, a little jealousy on my hand. Uh, do I know if I would be able to carry it to the same fruition that she does? Probably not, but she is a special human being and, and uh, you can kind of see why within the first few minutes of the interview. Absolutely. So I really don't want to delay this any further. Let's hear from Teach Better and jump right into our conversation with Christine Gertain. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. How are you guys? We are Getting doing ready to go. Yeah, chat about education. Absolutely. I'm I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, we've been we've been talking to to get connected for a while, so it's nice to, to finally have you on here with the show with us. So kick things off for us, nice and simple. Introduce yourself. Let us know where you're coming from, and let us know about your career in education. My name is Christine Gertain. I am the Director of Authentic Science Research at Toms River High School South and Toms River High School North in Toms River, New Jersey, which is roughly one hour straight north up the beach from Atlantic City. And we're about a half hour south of Asbury Park. So if you have those as frames of reference with Jersey, uh, I, we live at the beach. It's a great area. And we were the, you know, pretty much where Sandy hit. When Sandy came in 2012, it really affected our school district and our students and our nearby towns as well. I started off K through 12 in Toms River. I was born in Brooklyn and then we moved down here and my dad commuted to the city. My mom did a lot of different jobs, worked at 7-Eleven and watched kids and then was the food chopper for our school system and then eventually got herself a secretarial job at the high school where I went to high school, one of the two high schools where I presently teach, Tom Drew High School North, where my brother is a teacher, where my cousin David was a history teacher, and now he's a an uh, assistant superintendent in down in Stafford, David Trebo, and my brother's Paul Stenzel. He's a history teacher at High School North. And my dad commuted to the city. He worked for American Express for years. So you are you you are all in on education from from the family from yeah, so, my, I had two uncles that were bus drivers and an aunt that was a bus driver as well. Okay, so you're truly all in as yeah. a family on on the the education system. And I don't think you mentioned this, but maybe maybe I, I zoned out for a second. You are the 2023 New Jersey State, State Teacher of the Year. So congratulations, congratulations on earning that. Uh, I know that it is a long process to go through that, and 
Um, you are among you are among great teachers when you're when you're honored with that. So, can you explain your position because you have an amazing title? So, what is what is your role <laughs> in working with the uh, two high schools at, in your district? I so I basically facilitate fifty students, and it, that goes up and down each year depending upon you know the year. Some kids come out more years than others. It is a three-year research class and sophomore year, I I like to compare it to flavors of ice cream. If they only know vanilla and chocolate, then that's all they'll ever think they like, one of those. And it's my job to expand my horizons and what I know so that I can make opportunities for my students to know that there's more topics that they can do research on besides cancer and psychology. I'd say the bulk of my kids come in and that's their frame of reference for what they might want to do. And there's all, I mean, there's nanotech, there's, I had a kid build a 21 foot solar powered boat. Uh, There's things that they can do with data science. There's all different directions they can go. So I try to give them an introduction to that and let them know there's different options. And then I set them loose exploring uh, first, I would say secondary literature where they're looking at someone that's writing about somebody else's project. So Discover Magazine, you know, those types of things, Scientific American, uh, Science News, Science Daily. I have them look there to see, you know, what's going on and an easier way to read it. And then they work their way into reading professional journal articles once they have a topic and a direction. And we go through how to look at those, how to dissect the parts, what goes in each section. And then they also learn how to present those. So I meet with students, you know, once to twice a week as a group, depending upon what they're doing. And they're doing presentations on other people's research. So they're getting used to talking and communicating science. And then they are uh, slowly developing their own research projects. So I'd say end of sophomore year, beginning of junior year, they're collecting data, they're refining what they're doing, they're talking to scientists in those fields, and then also learning how to peer edit and give feedback. So it's truly driven by the students and what their interests are, and I'm kind of just conducting in the background there and facilitating directions and trying to answer questions when they're not sure how to read visualizations or how to do the statistics. I use Data Classroom a lot, which is great online tool to use so the students can learn how to do the statistics on their own on their own projects and then senior year they can choose to compete in competitions for scholarships or they can just present at our annual symposium and the students present each year sophomore year they're presenting someone else's paper same thing with junior year that's in their topic and then senior year they're presenting their own research holy cannoli it's kind of like science fair on steroids a little bit (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, initial reaction again, I'm, I'm coming from the fourth grade perspective. So sometimes I'm, I'm throwing the idea of, okay, we'll do not just the idea that comes to the top of your head, but research, uh, and what that looks like, let alone to do it at an authentic level and complete level. I, I just, that feels, um, and maybe you can enlighten me. Is that a a standard expectation at that secondary level? Because that no. sounds quite <laughs> impressive. 
and no, it's not, it's not it's an elective and they take all the regular science classes they give up their lunch in our district that's how it's run they give up their lunch so once to twice a week they're meeting as a group for those presentations and to give feedback or to do peer editing and then i'm meeting with each student once in a two-week period for 42 minutes to go over what they've read what questions they have and what their plan is for the next two weeks and then they have to do 10 hours on their own because they're not sitting in a class physically with me they're going to lunch or to gym and then that rotates like that every two weeks so it puts a lot on the student to be organized and to learn how to schedule their time and fit everything in yeah I mean, but that's also when you're talking about preparation for the real world, that is, especially if you're going, and as you kind of said, it doesn't necessarily have to be, and I, I believe you kind of alluded, it doesn't always have to be um, college preparation too. It's research-based of here's a, a problem or, or item in, in that direction. Ken, I don't know what you uh, experienced in the secondary level at your school, but I know that our high school has had to make adjustments to preparations of um, what is that post, the responsibility of a high school student, which is preparing for post schooling um, life. And, and where I teach only about 30% of the students go on to college. So quite, I don't know if this is quite a bit different than your demographic or not, but because of that, a lot of what our sophomores, juniors, seniors are doing is if they are on a college track, they're taking college style courses, which sounds in the same vein as what you're saying. They're working with an advisor that's doing kind of an independent study specific in that territory. Um, and then uh, if whether they're going to college or not, a lot of them are doing internships. So our, our middle school and high school schedule is really specifically high school is structured where there's built in time for those internships during the school day. And you Which walk is awesome. Yeah, you walk around the high school campus in the middle of the day and it looks almost like a ghost town. Um, which is not a bad thing, right? That we all agree. uh, It's hard to find someone who doesn't agree that kids getting the opportunity to to trial a passion and dive in with guidance. There's no harm in that. Um, I guess, Ken, I'll I'll turn to you first. And you have a slightly larger district, a little bit more affluent than uh, where I'm coming from. What is your high school experience like uh, is it more similar to what Christine's offerings are or um, more like the traditional high school setting? So I think it depends on on what students choose to pursue. <clears throat> and I think that's what some of the best things that high school can offer is when you look at what you get in elementary school, then middle school, then high school, the choice tends to increase. We have a real, in and where in our area, we have a really strong um we have a really strong technology, not a, not a technology school, but a tech school where they can explore uh, different trades and different pursuits like that. A lot of agricultural stuff that is a combination of multiple districts. So it's kind of county based. And so a lot of students pursue that. There's a lot of choice in, in electives. Our high school is moving to block scheduling, which I think is going to further enhance their, the student's ability to choose their own track because it does give you more flexibility and what you want to do. And, and I think it's so important to, to expose students to that so that they can, they can really go, um, you know, uh, a deep dive on something they know they're passionate about, that they know they are career driven towards that or college driven towards, 
a particular topic. And at other points, it gives them the opportunity to try something to figure out whether or not they want to. And so I think it's a really valuable experience that, that high schoolers can have um, in that setting. So, Christine, before you were in this position, I know you, you mentioned being K-12, but what primarily were you doing prior to this role? What were some of your teaching positions? I student taught in England when I was in college. So that was really interesting just to see their spiral curriculum. And I think that kind of always kept that global setting in my head, which I do a lot with that now. And then I taught earth science for 22 years. I've been teaching 29 years and I taught bio the first few years, probably four years split with earth science. I had a chance to go all earth science honors freshman, which I loved. I actually just saw one of my former students today. Um, so that was a lot of fun when I visited a different high school in, in uh, Jackson. Okay. So, so, Knowing what you know now and experiencing what you experience now with these students in your new role, how would you take your approach to learning with these students in this specialized class that they have? And how would you maybe adjust or rethink or further emphasize things that you were doing in, we'll say, a regular classroom setting um, that you feel would be beneficial to those classes that you taught? Probably introducing them to a journal article but in that setting everybody would get introduced to the same one that was easy enough to do and talking to them about how the visualizations are used to tell that story and what's important with it and introducing them to the concept that they could do research so for a time i taught freshman earth science and then those kids got recruited and moved into my research class so I would teach students for four years, which was awesome. I knew parents. Uh, there were some families I taught for a decade or more. That was awesome. I, that very little schoolhouse feel, really knowing the families. I really know my kids. Uh, they call me Mama G <laughs> because you know, I know who they're dating. I know when they're sad. Uh, I know when they're not quite right when we're moving, you know, when we're meeting because they're not one of 150. But but right. adding adding to that, you know, obviously you have the opportunity to know them deeper. But I, I was thinking about uh, comparing uh, overall GPA and college major GPA and naturally how that is better when you're, you know, hopefully choosing the right major in college. And I would imagine that it's got to be so... I don't want to say liberating, but it has to be so uh, exciting to see kids taking risks in passion areas where they're actually motivated and driven, because we often talk to people, go see kids outside of the school environment, learn what they're, you know, if they're a dancer, go see them as a dancer. It'll give you some clues into how they can excel in your classroom. If they're an athlete, go see them there to see your kids in their passion areas has got to be absolutely exhilarating. And one of those classic feelings like, I, I want to give my all to these kids, especially when you have them over a long period of time. So I guess the, the two questions that I have are, first off, how do you keep yourself from running on empty, giving too much, you know, letting that uh, excitement as you support kids go too far and B, 
how do you continue to guide students in these passion projects where you make sure they're making their own decisions and falling gracefully, but you're not interfering in their journey? I think people would say I probably run fast and furious. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't I don't know that I probably do a good job at that. Um, I it you know don't drink don't smoke what do you do I would say that this is my jam and that's what I get my natural high from is that excitement when the kid runs in and is like oh my gosh I found this article and it it answers exactly what I want to do and they sit down and they're just spewing right this stuff and they teach me a little bit about a lot of things so over a very long period of time now I, I have little tastes of a lot of different things. And at first that scares the kids a little bit, right? Because they're like, oh my gosh, like she knows this, she knows that. And that's just the nature of the beast from being, you know, just like you guys, you have your experience for where you are and then th that's your repertoire over time. But um, what was the second question again? Well, it's just like when you see them heading in a path that it's maybe like you could interfere but your role oh. is really for them to yeah. safely find their own conclusions. Yeah. And I and I have to wait. And that's the hard part. Because yeah. I've seen kids go down the path and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to end well because they can't do anything in that direction at this age. But I, it, it's very important for me not to tell them that and to say, okay, so, you know, how are you going to do that? Or what tools are you going to use? Or, you know, what's going to allow you to get to that, that point? And then they come back and they're like, oh, yeah, they haven't come up with that yet. Or, yeah, I think I have to change direction. But that's really important for them to have that ownership and to have that agency uh, because they are, for the first time, in charge of what they're learning. And it's extremely liberating. Uh, and sometimes can be daunting, right, because they're used to having so much structure. And it is structured, but it's structured in a way they're not used to because there aren't quizzes and tests. You know, they're writing something for me and they're writing it over and they're writing it over and they're writing it over just as if they were hired to do a job for someone you're not giving them c work oh i finished but it's only at c yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. they have to keep doing it till it's a work because that's what the consumer is purchasing right they're purchasing that best thing and so they learn that i'd say pretty early on but that's an adjustment well and and, and sorry to cut you off ken but i mean i feel like that's what we're as educators dreaming of. That is the scenario. And, and I agree, trying to sit on the sidelines, especially that now you have experience with it. You may know topics, you might have research articles you would suggest that they should find these type features, but also just not good fits. But boy, oh boy, Ken, could you imagine even with your fifth graders saying, you know what, we're going to polish this. I feel like at my level, and, and just because of expectations and scope and sequence, these type features, we, we get as far as we can that is a C work. And considering how much time we had and what we need to move on to, that's going to be good enough for now. But I would imagine if we go back to, you know, our, our dreams of education coming out of pre-service or, you know, when we decided we want to be a teacher was probably a little bit more uh, rich and, and closer to what you're providing kids, which is, again, so authentic to what real world is going to require of them. When you're saying things like developing stamina, it's authentic. Like it is real world 
actually applicable and going to totally give your kids a leg up when they leave your classroom graduating and going into the business world or um, because they have real skills as opposed to hopefully you have the skills and you can acquire what you what you and they're recording themselves they're watching just as if they were doing film for a sport yeah they're recording themselves you know some of the best advice i ever got from a student when i started teaching probably the first second day I was teaching was a biology student. He came to the front of the class. He slipped this little piece of paper onto my desk. And he's like, I thought you'd like to know. And he just walked out. He didn't say anything else, did it very respectfully. I pull up this little ripped piece of paper and there are 117 tick marks on it. And it said, you said like 117 times in a 42 minute period class. <laughs> and that was the best thing that kid could have ever done for me. Yeah. Right. So having that feedback and, the kids, when they're doing their presentations, look to see how many times, if they're a like person, if they're an um person, if I've noticed lately, I say right a lot in when I've listened to myself or I'm doing presentations, especially when you're interacting with an audience or you're on a panel and you're trying to get the people engaged and see, that's one of the things. They say I've ruined public speaking for them when they go other places and the people are not aware that they're doing that. And I'll get text with a paper, a picture of a paper where they're doing tick marks on their professors or a guest speaker someplace in college. And, and they're like, you've ruined me, Curtain. <laughs> <laughs> all, all I hear are the likes. All I hear are the ums. Oh, yeah. It's, <clears throat> I have a few of those, too. It's, it's so important, though, because oh, yeah. they will be able to present themselves as much better speakers than their peers. And it's not just when they're in college, they're going to shine when they're out of college, because that is a talent that many people do not have. It'll, it'll be very apparent when it comes to an interview, their ability to speak and their ability to convey thoughts and messages, because you don't really, sometimes you don't really notice it when someone's doing a lot of those things that you might do the tick marks for, but when someone, especially for a less polished speaker, but when someone doesn't do that stuff, any everybody notices it. Everybody realizes how good of a speaker they were. They might not know why, but they just, they feel it. And so when thinking about this with your students, I actually was having a conversation today about when, when you're trying to get students to do things that are a little bit more open-ended or a little bit more research-based or uh, there's not an exact way to do it. Teachers want to scaffold as much as possible to support their students as much as possible, especially for uh, learning support students and other included special ed students. And I'm not saying to not scaffold, but I truly believe that sometimes the best scaffold you can do is letting letting see uh, is waiting to see where the crack is, and then putting in the scaffold, waiting to see where they actually need help. Because if we scaffold, scaffold, scaffold out off the bat, we don't actually allow them to conceptualize learning themselves. So I have a feeling based on the students that you're working with and, and the way you're talking about a lot of these different projects and, and the reflection piece that you're building in, can you speak to how you are scaffolding for your students but maybe more in a reactionary way, or, you know, you can disagree with what I'm saying, but I would just love your thoughts on that, on that idea. No, sure. The, the scaffolding 
most of it comes from the fact that it's a three-year class and there are sophomores, juniors, and seniors in the same class. So the seniors are modeling what the sophomores want to eventually be as far as their abilities, their speaking abilities, how they are doing their presentations, how they might be using arrows and boxes around things to draw the audience's attention to a specific point in the PowerPoint so they can follow as you're speaking through a diagram or imaging. And they're hearing the seniors and juniors give that feedback orally as well. And they're seeing what's written because they have to write down so we give you know three positives and then two things that are constructive to you know how do they make this better if they're you know presenting to a large audience you know, what are those key things that are going to help them really take back that information because the students have to learn how to present to an audience when they're the sole speaker but also how to present at a poster when there are multiple people speaking at the same time and you have to keep track of your thoughts when other things are going on and that's not as easy you know as one would think so those are all skills that they're seeing modeled before they do it and then they're being put into that and i also hook them up with student mentors so there are seniors that have sophomores that they've adopted and that helps me a little not you know burn out because the students can ask those upperclassmen the questions when they're doing an article dissection for the first time or when they're making their powerpoint presentations for the first time or if they have to do an irb which is an internal review board paper because they're working with students or people when they're doing that for the first time they'll show it to their student mentor and say, can you look at this before I show it to Gertain and, and see, you know, if this looks okay before I go in there. And that's super helpful. So I like that interaction with the kids as well. And the older kids love it. They can't wait till they get assigned right. the younger students. So I want, I want to highlight one thing and then I want to challenge you for a little bit more uh, as well. So you talked about the two different styles of presentations where they're presenting to an audience, they're, they're, they're the show and then that kind of poster style. And mm -hmm. I, I want to highlight that because I think it's super important when we think about presentations that we do in our classroom. One, especially if you have a classroom of 30 students, maybe three or four, per five periods a day, the thought of sitting through all those presentations as a teacher mm -hmm. sounds terrible. The thought of your students sitting th through those sounds terrible. It takes mm -hmm. so much time to go through presentations like that. And I actually, in my fifth grade class, I eliminated that from my classroom mostly because of time. And I introduced a, a system that I used that was more of that poster style trade show like presentation. Mm -hmm. And I did it for two reasons, or I'll say three, the time piece, <laughs> the boredom piece, and the realistic piece. And I talked to my students about most people don't get to present to an audience by themselves. That's not mm -hmm. common in, in business, right? As a teacher, we do that all the time. But when you look in the business world, when you look in the real world, you have to reach a pretty high level to get a lot of people to sit down and listen to you. But if you're a salesman, <laughs> if, you are, if you are involved in so many different industries, that idea of standing in a trade show, one of 500 booths and people walking up to you, that's much more realistically going to happen in a career you choose. And so I, talk, so I would set up half of my class would be presenters. The other class, mm -hmm. the other half would circulate. We'd invite a couple other classrooms in. I might invite mm -hmm. parents in, or I might invite 
I would send it out to the staff and say, hey, if this is your lunch or this is your prep, please come through (laughs) five, 10 minutes, not a huge time commitment. And I would talk to my students. You can have materials prepared to present, but you can't present, you can't just stand there and present slides because someone Mm -hmm. might walk up to you halfway through what you were showing another person. Someone might walk up to you and see your title or see a brochure or see something you have Mm -hmm. and start immediately asking you questions because they're interested in that topic. Other people might walk up to you and just stare at you until you start talking. So I really put them in that situation (laughs) and, and they loved it. It was much faster. And when adults came through, they loved it too, because they saw that being more realistic. So I wanted to highlight that because I think it's such a great strategy to use in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to challenge you with a little bit is I love the scaffolds that you're putting in place. I love the student mentorship and I, and I don't want to discount that at all because I think that's so valuable Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you would take those ideas and those scaffolds and that student mentorship and take it back to when you taught earth science or you taught biology and you only had those kids for one year, you didn't have a three-year senior Mm -hmm. in your class. How would you apply these scaffolding strategies that you have here into a classroom that Mm. might be more common for others? Or just the idea of scaffolding afterwards. I do. So I do the round robin kind of idea with the poster boards, which I really like. And I invite teachers in to see that, to also just promote the program and have them have a better understanding of what that looks like and what the students are actually doing in that class. To bring that back, I would say some of the things that I do with the students now is they they have to do an elevator pitch. They have to give me one minute with an introduction of, hi, my name is such and such. I am a sophomore or a junior at so-and-so, and they talk about their project. I think that would work really well in a class of 30 students if they're pitching that to the other student and the other student had to write down something about that project and what the key takeaways were for that project. I think that would probably work pretty well. And if they were also um, rating each other and peer editing each other for that, and then you are having to pick the top ones then to be presented or something like that so that the whole class then gets to see everything. Matt, I want to I throw it to you too, especially you coming from the learning support world where your job literally was to scaffold constantly, especially if you had students on your caseload that were included, you had to provide those resources to support the general education teacher. But where do you see opportunity in, in what you teach to scaffold less initially off the bat and then have prepared scaffolds in place when you see that they actually need it? I mean, using kind of, Christine, your model, a lot of the times it's getting the material so much that I felt like early days, again, we're going back quite a few years, was um, making sure that my students had content accessible to them at a reading or uh, instructional level, whether that's auditory, visually, what have you, but it's not just guessing or prior experience that they're going based off of. You know, if they can't read on grade level, what is the closest research-based material that they would have access to, or what am I doing to support them to get access to that level? And then a lot of times the scaffolding ends up just being what is the essentials that need to be included, and then providing the practice and the guidance of a presentation that makes sense. 
um, for them in the scenario that they're dealing with. That That's what I would use as scaffold from the point of view of they have no less expectations, but maybe they have a little less freedom of the broadness of what they're choosing. Um, kind of like the, the classic, Ken, I know we were talking about Canva last week. Um, if I send my kids onto Canva, they will spend 90% of the time picking a, a template or a theme. If I give my, my students in learning support the guidelines that they're working within, I give them the proper preparation, we've worked through, we've kind of gotten our butterflies out, we've talked through those scenarios, I felt like the scaffolding ended up being more so check-in and accountability, more so than a decrease of rigor or expectation, if that makes sense. Totally. Because uh, you might be able to, in your position, allow the seniors to check on the sophomores. And even regardless of that scenario, you are hovering where you know you need to hover to, to provide assistance. I think that's what we all recognize. Um, what I'm fascinated about, and I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm such in awe, but uh, I, I just learned that I'm moving grade levels next year, which is exciting. But the idea of taking on something new and looking at it from a new perspective. And uh, I, I did the classic like how to be a fifth grade teacher type, you know, Google searches, which, you know, with ChatGTP, I need to work on my prompting. I get it. Um, but sometimes when you take on something new, and you don't feel like you have a great model. For instance, there are plenty of male fifth grade teachers. Uh, there are not a whole lot of male fifth grade teachers that like putting their stuff out in a comprehensive way. So I may get a few photos that are fuzzy and out of focus, but when you are creating something new, that is that there is not a whole lot of model behind. What was that work up to pace to get it up to speed to where it is now? Um, because you took on what sounds like an opportunity instructionally that has a lot of different directions it could go. What are some of the early stages of things that you did? And how did your program and your path and your you know, outcomes change as you uh, did for a few years? You definitely adapt. And I felt alone for a long time because I am in a section of Jersey where that type of class wasn't happening. Ocean County is a very blue collar area. A lot of my students' parents have not gone to college. My parents had not gone to college. And, you know, so looking at that and trying to make that accessible for those kids and seeing what worked and what didn't, I say with like anything else, it was trial and error what worked. I had support because we are partnered with SUNY Albany and I would get in the car and we would drive four hours to SUNY Albany once a year and meet with other teachers that were mostly from New York because it started in New York, this three-year class. Uh, we would meet with them, learn from them and take things back and then try it again. But the teachers I started with, the original, there were three of us, one at each of the three high schools. They retired within the first, the one that retired two years in, the other one retired three years in. So then it was me training the next batch of teachers for that class to take over at those other schools. And then, you know, 
training the next person because there was another changeover in that school. And the one teacher that replaced the first teacher was my study hall teacher when I was in high school. So I was training my study hall teacher. And then when she retired, I replaced her at that school. So I'm the third teacher at the one school. I'm the original research teacher at High School South. I'm the third one at High School North. And I think High School East has had four, all of which I've trained. And so when there were other people cropping up, uh, I trained a teacher at Jackson High School for research. And having us all together was really nice to just feed off of each other and, and take a look at ideas that the other, because you're stronger from other people's ideas. We're stronger together. And when you're trying to build something on your own, it's never as good as when you can do it with a team. And so having that team, I would say the last six years and the women that I've worked with to do that and having that consistency has really helped to build the research class because each of us did a little something and had a different take on it, shared that with each other. And, and then I found, you know, just through searching Society for Science, and they have a research teachers conference, a national one, where if you get picked in a lottery, you get flown down or driven down for free to DC, and you meet with all other teachers around the country that have research classes. So that's that's really helped. I I collect different ideas and things. That's what I do. I, everybody has their superpower. I think mine is meeting people, seeing what they have to offer and putting them together with other people to make a, a project better or an idea better. Uh, and I, I would say that's my approach, seeking out other people to see what they can do and how I bring that into my class to kind of guide what the students are doing or giving them resources. I had a student that dissected fish to look for micro and macro plastics and we shipped them to Caltech because I got involved with this nanoscience group at Penn State who said oh yeah and we have this other group called the RAIN Network and part of their grants that they write to use all this big equipment they have to do outreach with high school teachers and do stuff for free with them and you can ship them your samples and I was like what? <laughs> So we shipped these samples to Caltech and she got to use a million dollar machine remotely through Zoom where she got to move the X and Y axes. They locked the Z so she couldn't bring this, you know, million dollar scanning electron microscope down into the samples and break something. And she got to do the imaging. When are you going to have that? Right. It was, she will never forget that, even if she doesn't go in that direction. And that's, I, I say, is it's always just as important to figure out what you won't want to do and you're not passionate about as what you are passionate about, because it really, it, it helps you with your direction and you don't waste time then. Or money in college, pursuing yes, a career right, that exactly. you realize that you so have. So they're getting that taste right, now. That you really realize you yeah. have no, no interest in doing. And so I, I want to talk about conferences that. a little bit and what you mentioned, Matt, do you want to jump in real quick? Yeah, I just, I, using that, like, and I just think it's just a fun exercise. If you had a course like this, going back to high school, Ken, what's something that you would have researched? And, and Christine, I would, uh, I would offer you the same thing. And, and the cheap answer would be, I'd probably be, you know, in the same spot that I'm in. But what is something that you think you would have taken up knowing yourself at that age range, that high reward low to no risk scenario. Um, and can I answer that first? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think that I would have been mature enough to give up my lunch 
and time in the summer to take that class because I would I worked so hard in school that me right at that time and at that age that that lunch and my summer were my time I got very ticked off when they first start <laughs> and, and remember I'm 51 so they really didn't have summer assignments they were just coming and we had a book we were supposed to read for college that was for no credit what I did not read it and I was on a full ride to school and I, we came in and during freshman orientation and they're like, all right, so what do you think of the book? I said, I'm just putting this out there. I get no credit for this uh, whatsoever. This, it doesn't advance me in any way. I did not read this book. And they were like, what? Right. And that was my immaturity at that time in that because I did not see the reward for my efforts. So I don't know that I would have seen, like, I, I wouldn't have been the student that would have seen the merit in that at that time because of my maturity at that time. And me now, there's so many things that I would be like, oh, I wish I had time to research this or research that. Yeah, my <clears throat> my answer is kind of similar in the sense that when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a teacher and I knew I wanted to go to a state university in Pennsylvania. And I knew what the requirements were to get into those universities and I didn't have to try super hard to get into them. Um, and so I was coasting a bit, but my senior year, I had double early release. So I was leaving on half days, my last two marking periods. But I was actually volunteering at an elementary school four days a week for three hours a day. I was working in a fifth, in a sixth grade class the entire year. Uh, this was at a time where volunteering in schools was a lot easier. My sixth grade teacher was the assistant principal and he set it up for me. And, and I honestly, I did it because my mom encouraged me to do it. And it was kind of what you said, Christine. She's like, if you're going to go to school and pay for it for four years, you better figure out if you really want to do that or not, because you can go to school for business and say like, oh, I don't really like this. I'll just go that direction. You go for teaching. That cert doesn't get you a whole lot else. So it was it was kind of those those two pieces. But um, so from a research standpoint, I don't know that I would have had something super passionate to look into, but I guess in some capacity I, I did something similar to it on uh, focused on the, on the career that I wanted. And it really helped. It really helped me set up for success um, and doing that with um, her name is Mrs. Moyer. I still never forget. It was, it was a great, it was a great experience for me. Um, and it was at a time where she could allow me to like actually teach lessons and, and really do a lot of stuff. I was doing a lot of student teaching stuff um, similar in my, my senior year of high school. So I wanted to, now I, I, you threw me off, Matt. I don't remember what I was going to say. Well, I, you said I will, conferences. I, conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something about conferences. I, I will answer because you didn't ask me what I would have wanted. Oh, sorry. I forgot you asked this question just so you could answer it yourself. <laughs> no, no. I'm just saying the <laughs> decent I'm... thing, right? Uh, no, I actually, I was really in on the track of communications. And so kind of diving into the understanding marketing based. Um, I was, I worked as the manager of our high school radio station at that time. I was in performing, uh, performing theater quite a bit. I was dancing quite a bit. I was also doing sports. I was just kind of a unicorn of things, but I would have been really interested to see if I could get the groundwork set in communication. And I, all I remember was people kept on saying, it's such a difficult job to narrow a career to narrow down what you want to do that I got so bullish of it that I gave it up so quickly. So even if it were to be something in that realm of media or researcher, you know, this is pre-social media, but again, the impacts of those type features, I think that's the route where I, because um, I, I went into teaching 
not look at you now with a podcast right? yeah well, yeah. well and that's the, that's the funny you're welcome, part Matt, for starting Hysterical. this podcast and making your Thank dream you. come true well well it is it is right in line but no I, I i i didn't necessarily go into teaching because it was my life calling and, and you know i've done okay with it since but um it, it's a really interesting thing that i i, I would be very intrigued and, and just i wish your kids new and they probably do hopefully they do especially if they're taking the time like you're you're mentioning they are out of their own schedule um just how valuable that really is and what a jump start that not a lot of kids are offered offered in different ways but not to the fulfilled way that you're you're providing them and it's kids at all different levels too i've had yeah. kids with learning disabilities dyslexia i had one girl um who was what was considered college prep but not honors and had a learning disability and when she got to undergrad they kept trying to convince her to get out of science and she said because i had the tools from this research class and i believed in myself for what i had accomplished already and now she's getting her phd wow it's amazing That's awesome so i wanted to ask about conferences because matt and i have had a couple of shows where we talk about going to conferences. We recorded one at a conference. What advice do you have for a teacher listening to this who has never been to a conference? How do they first, how do they first think about where to go? And, and more importantly, why should they consider going? What is the value that you see in going to conferences for teachers? You have to feed yourself before you can feed your students. And I didn't know any, they do a much better job of this for pre-service teachers now and letting them know to join societies and that there are conferences to go to and taking some of them to conferences. When I came out and I started teaching, not even the teachers mentoring me and they were great mentors, but it wasn't, hey, I'm gonna take you to a conference or you should join the New Jersey Earth Science Teachers Association or you should join until I went to grad school. I started teaching in 94 and I started grad school in 2000 because I was coaching basketball and I blew out my knee. Uh, I blew out my ACL playing pickup games at the park. A guy slipped on some gravel, took my knee out. I said some bad words out loud <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I had surgery and I stopped coaching. It's, and my a, brother it's allowed. You're from New Jersey. Too. Yeah. So that's yeah, a portion I, of it. I said a four letter word that was, <laughs> I wouldn't, shouldn't say in class. And I said it very loud repeatedly because uh, <laughs> I heard the snap and it hurt. Um, yeah, but my brother-in-law was always on me. When are you going to grad school? When are you going to grad school? And and so when I tore my ACL and I stopped coaching, I was like, I guess I'm going to grad school. Uh, and so that's what I did. And I was opened up to this whole world of conferences and societies. And I'm like, there's a New Jersey, you know, Science Teachers Association. I, ha I had no idea. And that going and learning and seeing other teachers model that and then hear about them traveling to all these different places. Uh, I have traveled so much because of education and taking classes in different places. I took a grad school class in Hawaii uh, on the geology of Hawaii, which was awesome. And taking kids to Europe, I would say the best thing you can do to stay fresh, right? And stay relevant for your students because if you do not evolve, you will be a dinosaur and you will die. And that evolution only comes with knowing what the latest things are. I had to go to a national science conference in Pennsylvania, in Philly, uh, and find out about something that was happening in New Jersey because the grants are driven by them having to present at a national conference. And so they're not necessarily funded to present in their state, but they're funded to 
go to this national conferences and present as part of that. So there were, just, and once I went to that first biotech training at, at Rutgers and I asked other teachers, what have you gone to that's like this? Because this is amazing. Some of the best professional development at the Waxman Student Scholars Program that I'd ever been to. And they said the Wolbachia Project. And so I Googled the Wolbachia Project and then led me down this crazy rabbit hole into lots of more, you know, a lot more, a lot more conferences, um, partnering with industries. I really feel like instead of building this K through 12 STEM pipeline, it needs to be a K through industry STEM pipeline and that industries have to take a greater role in helping teachers to educate themselves and then to also make opportunities for their students so that they're getting the type of workers that they need the way they need them. And they don't do that unless they bring those teachers in and have those boots on the ground and have those connections. So I would like to see a lot, a lot more connection right with industry to the teachers and having, you know, teacher fellowships and, and supporting that. That would be, you know, my dream to get out of this whole state teacher of the year thing, making those connections and make that happen. And I would Starting imagine in Jersey to do that. Yeah. I would imagine that honestly, us as teachers, the only thing we want is for our kids to go on and be fruitful in those experiences. So, you know, it may be more work or, or it might be, uh, a little bit more task by by all means to adjust how we've done it but if we know that it's directly correlating to the success you know those those first eight weeks they're more prepared as they go into the adventure of you know learning a trade and in that authentic industry-based environment that's got to be huge yeah i said get yourself to a conference make some friends at the conference exchange information. Teachers need business cards. That's one of the best things that uh, I worked with a group called Nourish the Future and they're supported by the National Corn Growers Association and they handed us all business cards when they brought us to this funded conference called the Commodity Classic. And that was empowering because then when I made connections, I handed that business card out and was able to network more you know, with other people, that sharing of ideas and hearing what the other teachers are doing. And now being able to travel around on sabbatical and visit classrooms, it's amazing. And talk to other teachers and the, just the ability to go to more conferences and meet other people, meet teachers from other countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do love the business card idea as well. I think it, I think it is empowering and you can, Vistaprint, what, like 20 bucks you can get a set of 250 of them. Those will last you. Yeah, those will, yeah, those will last you a long time. And and I just want to reiterate the, the idea you're saying is the conference, you hopefully will find a conference that has valuable content for you. And I think you will mm -hmm. find sessions that you enjoy. But talking to the presenter afterwards or talking mm -hmm. to someone sitting next to you is some of the best connections that you can make. And when you go to those conferences... The presenters are, you know, I would say at least 75% of them are still in the classroom in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They want people to talk to them afterwards so they know how their presentation was and they want to learn from others and they want to share those ideas. I've presented at conferences for years now and I love, it actually just happened this week, I had someone email me asking for my slide presentation from a conference three years ago. And so like, <laughs> just because... For whatever reason, she needed it. She wanted it. She wanted to see something out of that. And like, I stopped what I was doing and dug through my Google Drive to find that presentation or something similar to it because I just think it's awesome. This teacher clearly is passionate about doing something different in her classroom. 
And I've said this before when we talk about conferences, your district has money to send you. They likely have money they are not spending to send you because there are specific title funds and government funds and budgetary categories that are dedicated to professional development that a lot of times the districts don't end up spending that money because it's difficult for the upper administrators in charge of that budget to find all the conferences and to find everything meaningful and to send the teachers. It's a lot of work to find that. So I would highly encourage you as a teacher, ask your principal, ask your assistant superintendent, work up the food chain and ask, and there is likely funds available to help support you in, in going to conferences. So don't feel like you have to do it out of pocket and don't feel like it's impossible to get that support. I, I had to write grants because there have been a lot of budget cuts. We lost 33% of our budget in state cuts this year. And then they had to do emergency things in the state when they realized, oh, we took too much money from everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've had to I've had to fund myself through grants mostly because of the loss in the last six years that our school districts has. But but make the partners with the industry when you go to, you know, if you can get to one or you have a vendor that you're using, you can say, hey, can I present you know, for you and present one of your things, will you sponsor me to go to that conference? I, I've had a lot of luck with different, you know, vendors. Mini One has sponsored me. They're an electrophoresis uh, equipment company, and they've been wonderful in that support. Uh, very good at sending teachers to conferences. Uh, National Corn Growers, American Farm Bureau Foundation, if you're presenting for them and have gone to their, some of their other things, they'll support teachers to go to state and national conferences. And a, so that making those partnerships is important. a lot of the smaller conferences, too, if you put in an application to present. And I encourage you to do so, especially if you've never been the one you would quickly realize, wow, I can do this. I can definitely do this. If you've presented anything to your staff, if you've done any low level professional development, you 100 percent can present if you are just passionate about something in your classroom. And a lot of the smaller local and state level conferences, when you present, you get free registration. And so that's usually your biggest cost, especially if it's drivable, you don't need lodging or anything. Now you have a free, an almost free ticket to going to that conference. So I really, really encourage our listeners to, to expand their horizons, step out of their comfort zone and go to conferences. There's also definitely the route of volunteering as well. I know a lot of those bigger conferences, I work for uh, ISTE uh, over the summer, so they will fly me wherever I need to go. But I, I have an elevated position there. I'm lucky enough for the event staff. But that being said, I started by just being a volunteer for them. You give an hour or so the time per day of the conference, they give you hundreds of dollars of registration free or severely discounted. And I would go to my admin and, and like you said, Christine, with the budget cuts, it might be a little bit dicier, but if I could walk into my, my principal's office and say, hey, the registration for this is 400 bucks, um, I, I figured out a way that I could spend or, or save $150 or something towards that showing that your initiative really a, a strive to go um they'll figure out a way a lot of times or um you can continue like you're saying i think your suggestions of hey this is a a group that might benefit from you representing them or putting in a presentation um there are ways to to take away that that limitation 
And I would also tell teachers to you know, build up your LinkedIn presence, and that is your online resume. When you start going to these things, keep track of it on there, post about it on there, because when someone's going to look you up to partner on a grant or um, maybe invite you to present someplace, they're going to Google you. And that that's one of the best things. I, I use Twitter a lot just because I'm science and all the scientists are on Twitter. If the students have a question, we ask a scientist on Twitter, get, they get social credit for answering. Uh, you know, they, we usually get an answer much faster than if we email. What's interesting, do you, Ken, do you use LinkedIn? Because I, I I'm maybe a little bit more hesitant, again, low level, and I haven't changed careers uh, in, in a while. So my association with LinkedIn, but I know that it's growing as a social media platform beyond just uh, how it was four or five years ago. Have, what is kind of your, not to take it in a different route, but like, Christine, how else are you using it? Like you said, it's an online resume, but how is that beneficial to teachers that may not be leaving the classroom? So yeah, obviously so, uh, the grants. Yeah, and but... I don't, and I, I use it to make connections. Anytime I'm on a Zoom and there are presenters on there, I go into LinkedIn, I put connect and I send them a message and say, very nice, you know, hearing you speak today at such and such. Because at some point I may have a question I need or a connection I need that I use and I say, you know, and I'm connected to them, they're ready, they hit connect, and then I'll remind them because I'll look at my chat, you know, where I saw them from or use them from. And I, I might say, you know, I'm looking for information on such and such about this topic for something we're doing in class. Oh, yeah, great. And they see that we're connected already and then they answer. So I use that that way to enhance what my students are doing and the connections I can make to my students. Because I might say, I have a student who's interested in such and such, they've read this paper, and I do that on LinkedIn and, and reach out to them that way. Or I might tweet and direct message somebody that way and say, you know, I have a student doing a project. In a regular classroom, it all depends. I, I have middle school teachers that do adopt an aquifer. And when they went to a conference and met some farmers, they connected with farmers that lived on those aquifers. They may be able to look for scientists that are working on projects on those aquifers. And then the students can interview those people and they've used LinkedIn to mine that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about that. And I think it's so important for teachers to think about how they can connect with professionals, whether they are just passionate about the topic, they work locally in something related, or those those connections are making at conferences or other events, and just just put yourself out there. Whether it's through social media, it's through email. You kind of find as you explore different channels what the best way to communicate with those individuals are. But just like I said, when I that person emailed me to send that presentation, people just want to help, especially. Good people just want to help teachers. They want to help kids when they feel like there's a, a meaningful cause behind it or a meaningful reason behind it. And a lot of times it doesn't take too much time for them. So I think it's I think you're highlighting the uh, the idea of how important it is for teachers to reach out to both local, regional and national figures that can help with facilitating conversation, providing resources, providing feedback to students, all those all those different capacities. So I would love to continue the conversation, but I want to be mindful of our time and jump into our exit ticket, which is the same four questions we ask every guest every week. Question number one, what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? And I've heard this from a lot of the teachers on your podcast, but it's very true, is to know your students and, and to take the time to get to know them. 
when I was in an earth science classroom and I had kids that I had to discipline for behavior, I gave them my own detention. And I didn't just sit there and have them sit in silence. I sat there and I used that 42 minutes to talk to that kid and to find out about that kid, what their interests were. And we had a conversation and it wasn't rewarding them, right? But I wanted to make sure that the next time they thought about doing whatever they were doing, they weren't supposed to, they would think twice about it because they now understood me a little better and had a connection with me. And maybe that wasn't going to be their same choice. So I, I would definitely say, taking the time to put into the student because they just want to be seen, right? They want someone to care about them and not all of them have someone that is caring about them. I love that answer. Fantastic. I was a little worried that you were going to say uh, they knew that I'd have to sit and talk to you for 42 more minutes if I continued, not uh, <laughs> knew what you expected. So I know you, you mentioned earlier, uh, best piece of advice, which was the frequency of like. So maybe a little bit of challenge uh, with the, the tally marks that you mentioned, how oh, often you, you said I thought you like. said light. I didn't hear that right. Oh, no. But you meant like. Yeah. Yep, like. That's so, my hearing, not you. <laughs> that's okay. What is that uh, another piece of really good advice that you've received? And it might have been from, uh, I'll adjust a little bit, a colleague, supervisor, student, or even industry personnel. Ooh. And it's a sad one uh, that when you have an opportunity or there's change that can come your way for you to um, grow and expand, don't stay for the kids because the kids are leaving. So if you think, you know, don't stay for that specific group. And, and that and that is a sad thing because I, I can't imagine getting to that point where that happens. But I was I was definitely told that and I've seen other people that said if I had stayed for this, I would have missed this opportunity and then I wouldn't have been able to help these other children. Right. Because I was so concerned and sad that I would be leaving this group. Um, but the students are leaving you and they're leaving you every year. Uh, and so that was what a, a seasoned teacher said to me. But that makes me sad. I like the like one much better. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Interesting. I, I, I'll have to think about that one because it, it, it's, it's dense. It's, it's hard to swallow that, that piece of advice. And, uh, and that's, for instance, you're not staying in your grade. Totally. Yep. And you're going to a different grade. Absolutely. And maybe you were really excited about that next group of kids, but you're making that change and you're expanding and changing what you're doing. You're not staying put. You're not saying you're not being sessile, right? You're, you're staying in motion. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll put some numbers behind it on that one because, so I taught fifth grade for a long time, same school. And I moved into teaching STEM in a different elementary school in my same district. So I went from seeing 30 to 90 kids because we switched a little bit in fifth grade every year to working with 450 kids because it was one through five STEM. I was only in that position for one year. Then I became a coach. So now when I walk around in the one middle school, I know all of the kids because they all had me for one year, whether it be, it would be right now be third, fourth or fifth grade. And they see me in the school. They say hi to me, you know, great interactions with them. I have a group of 30 kids that had me for move up day four years ago that thought I was going to be their fifth grade teacher. And I have... Right. Maybe five or six kids, actually one recently, a week ago, said to me, I'm still mad at you because you left and you weren't my fifth mm -hmm. grade teacher. So yeah. yes, that student was disappointed. I do feel bad. 
but I went from mm-hmm. impacting 30 to yes. impacting 450. And so yes. it's not that, you know, you, you can't, you can't be everywhere, right? You can't, you right. can't serve all students at all times. So you do have to look and, and, and try to make just the best decision for you and for yeah. all students when, yes. when you're looking at possible changes. Yeah. If I stayed coaching, I would not be the teacher I am today. And I firmly believe that if I stayed because of the group I was working with and I wanted to be working with them for multiple years, I would have not had the effect on all of the students that I've had through the other things I've taught and the research or teachers I've mentored. It wouldn't have happened because I would have never went to grad school, would have never went to the conferences. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a real quick question before returning to the exit ticket? One of the things I found interesting is you said back when I taught earth science and I had to discipline kids. Does that mean discipline is non-existent in your current role? Non-existent in my class because they choose to be there. Yeah. I, I, I'm living in heaven. (laughs) That that intrinsic motivation, right? When kids are doing things they want to do. And they have to be at a certain level, right? They're, yeah. It looks like the grades are inflated, but if they're not at an A, they really shouldn't be there. It's like grad school. When you went to grad school, you didn't get Bs and Cs because you were at that point where you chose to be there for that and you wanted to be doing whatever you were doing in that focus. And that's those these students. And at all different levels, like I said, they're not they're not always the top kid and you know, not, not always the super achiever and everything else. It might be the first thing they were ever in charge of that really let them blossom. All right. So this next question is going to challenge you because you just said you're in teaching heaven, but uh, I'm sure you still have a way to connect to it. We talk about how the school year goes in waves. You know, there are great points of the school year, but there are definitely times that we are struggling to survive days, weeks, you know, conferences, parent teachers, report cards, but just end of deadlines. What is something you feel like you could share with educators uh, to help them power up through those moments of struggle? I would, you have to do something for yourself. And I definitely don't, I don't take enough time for that. But as I said before, I really think, you know, some of the things that I do through school are, are, giving me major endorphins, right? <laughs> and so I, I think that's my jam, right? Um, some people, you know, it's they go for a run. Some people get outside and connect back with nature. I'm a big tree person, so I will randomly just touch trees and I feel the need to touch the trees. And I know that's so bizarre, <laughs> but I'll just walk by. My friend's like, did you just like touch that tree or like touch those leaves? I'm like, I did. I just, I felt Had that to get grounded. To, yeah. yeah. To connect that way back with nature. And that is different for everybody. Maybe it's a massage. If you can <laughs> get someplace where there's a special, right. And, and have a massage, do something that is just for you. Absolutely. So it's easy to, fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What do you think separates the teachers who are the ones seeking to change, innovate, and adopt new teaching strategies? That what's them? What do you think, what do you think them? separates them? What, what makes teachers be the ones that are, the, are, are constantly seeking to change, innovate, and try new teaching strategies? As opposed to teachers that aren't? Correct. 
yeah, I think I think some of them are just upstream swimmers, right? And you have that in business, you have that in everything else. You're going to have the ones that are constantly challenging themselves, that don't like to sit still, that want to evolve and want to change. And when you're teaching earth science for five sections and you do something with the first period, you're like, ooh, that didn't really go well. You're adapting on the fly and changing that because you want it to be better. Uh, some people, I think you're just born that way. And other people can be that way if they see that modeled well. So I think the mentoring and pulling people along with you. If you have an opportunity or if you're going to present someplace, I pulled other teachers with me. I said, hey, have you ever done this? Have you ever presented at a conference? I want you to come with me. I want you to do this. Because it might be something they never thought about and they didn't realize people were thinking that way. So if you don't show them they can swim up the river, they only know to go down the river. I love it. Can I ask a, a bonus question? I already asked one, so I'll go another. I'm fine with time, so go ahead. Christine, can you just share, just from the uplifting side of things, what are some of the projects that you've witnessed that you've been the most proud of? What are the outcomes that you feel like have represented the why behind all the effort you've put into specifically this newer position? Whether that's I'm, I'm going to talk about the first year I taught this. Yeah. And the first time I cried because of the beauty of what I saw. And that was the first midterm paper they had to do where they, it was a state of the union of what you knew so far about your topic. And when I sat and read what they had learned and what they understood about their topic that they had put in their own words. And I had the one girl who was dyslexic that it took her much longer to read everything. And she never gave up. I, I sat there and I cried reading those papers. And over the years, I stopped crying at that specific. But that was the first time I saw the power of what they knew things about. And, and that, that was beautiful. Uh, some of the projects I had, a student, like I said, built a 21-foot solar-powered boat. I called him BJ the Wonder Boy. I'm still in touch with him. He builds boats for a living now and signed the first draft uh, he made, I don't know what they call blueprints for the ship. It was a tanker ship that went out from Norfolk. He brought it, me the blueprints signed and he got funding from Viking yachts. He taught himself how to bend the wood by making it, I guess, moist or wet or something. So it was more pliable, uh, did all the fiberglassing, did all the wiring on the boat and it ran but he wanted to be able to water ski with it and he didn't re reach that, you know, that point, but it got him into the web Institute for nautical engineering that only takes 25 kids. They have an endowment. It's out on long Island. And then he went to grad school for free at Stevens as well, because they said, we'll pay for everything as long as you agree to do research for us while you're here. So that, that was a project. That's amazing. Uh, I've had students that have studied oral bacteria. So S. mutants is a bacteria that causes cavities in your mouth. And they looked at all different essential oils to do that. Uh, and they've just kept going. So this one family of students, the Onifredis, the girls all did, you know, different projects related to either oral bacteria or fungi. And, and tested all different things, but they competed every year and built upon it. Usually in the three-year research class, they finish with a project, you know, by senior year. These kids were doing stuff freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. I have a girl that just won a national environmental award 
presidential award because of work that she does with bees. And, you know, that was something I saw someone present at a conference. She was in middle school. I had worked with her older sister. She was reaching out and saying, hey, can you look at our poster boards? Uh, what are some things I can look into? I said, you should look into the Varroa mites. You should look into these bees. She started down that path and she's now the bee queen of New Jersey and up for national bee queen. Uh, she interviews scientists across the country for the army and uh, and has, you know, her own her own YouTube channel for that with the army. And so the the kids amaze me in what they do. Just absolutely amaze me in what they do. That's so cool. And all different aspects of things. Because it, it's it, the reason why I asked that is because I would imagine they just jump off that diving board with you and just don't stop. You know, once once they have the preparation coming from from your opportunity, I would imagine. I mean, the, the nicest thing that ever happened for me, well, two things, was I, I had I do this partnership with Israel, with students that they collect data. Uh, uh, from insects here to see a bacterium that's called Wolbachia, if they have it or not, because if it's in mosquitoes, it blocks the spread of dengue and Zika. So they've released mosquitoes that specifically are infected with this bacterium so that they can up the percentage of the prevalence in an area. And then in Townsville, Australia, they average 13 cases of dengue every year. And then after they let these loose, then they didn't have any cases and it, it's a naturally occurring you know bacterium so it's, it's not an issue that way but the students do a project with israeli students where they collect insects look for the prevalence we do the same thing and then they work on teams and then they make a powerpoint and a poster board with their team they connect with them on whatsapp and zoom they learn about kids in a different country who have english as a second language and then they um present to a panel of scientists from Switzerland, the United States, and Israel. And the one kid came up to me a year later after we did this project, that he, and I do it every, well, almost every year, COVID, you know, and all that. And he said, I never really, you know, you tell us to do all these things and try these things, so we do, because we know it'll be good for us. He goes, but I never fully grasped how good this Wolbachia project was for me to do. He said, well, I got my college essay prompts and I could write all about Wolbachia, the whole thing. He's like, it's a really good essay. And then when I had interviews for college, that's what they wanted to talk to me about. And I could talk about it because it was this experience that I really loved, you know, talking with these students, learning about how they go to school from Sunday to Thursday and they're off on Friday and Saturday because of Sabbath and everything in Israel. And, and just that excitement was super cool. The second thing was when my daughter, who did not take my research class, told my son, who is a freshman and can apply this year, that he has to take the research class and that she regretted not taking it because all of her friends, including that one I just talked about, had all these different opportunities that she only took advantage of some of them because I said, you really need to do this. And there was that, you know, kind of pushback because it was my own kid. And then my son said, well, I guess I have to take the research class now. I said, I'm not making you take the research class. And he said, well, my sister says I should take the research class. And it was a mistake she made. Well, I'm not going to not do that. <laughs> so I just laughed. And that was That's super fulfilling right for me. Super fulfilling. Well, the I've enjoyed this immensely. I know I can speak for Ken as well, and, and you'll voice that in a moment, but um, you are continuing to do great work. What is the best way that we can follow along in your journey and uh, connect with you? 
LinkedIn, obviously one of those options, but uh, what, what's the best way to get in contact with you and follow along? You can follow me on Twitter, which is CCGIRT, G-I-R-T. So two C's and then GIRT for my last name. And, or you can email me at njstoy, so N-J-S-T-O-Y, 2023 at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to talk to you about anything that you'd like to in education. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you so much, Christine. I have loved this conversation. And I just think it's, I, I love what we've done with the show in the sense that we've been able to just talk to so many amaz- amazing educators. You are just another one that has just shown a different side to teaching, a different side to learning. And regardless of what you teach, applying the strategies that you're hearing with Christine and the ideas are completely possible in your classroom K through 12. And thinking about what's at the core of what you value with your students, I, I think is what we can really pull away and, and apply to our own classroom. So I'm just amazed at what you're able to provide for your students, for them to shine and grow and really ex- explore their passions. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for what you do to your students and please continue to have a positive impact on education in your state as well as our country. So Matt, why don't you shut us on down here? All right, as we power down this episode, Christine, without a doubt, you've left us feeling powered up. Thank you for your time and we will talk to everyone next week. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.